Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with U.S. Special Envoy to Yemen, Tim Linderking, about the recent truce negotiated in Yemen. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Tim Lenderking is a career diplomat serving as the U.S. Special Envoy to Yemen. He's had senior diplomatic roles in the Gulf and in Iraq. And we first met 20 years ago when he was the Middle East advisor to then Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, Mark Grossman. Tim, welcome to Babel. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. The Saudis have been battling the Houthis for seven years, but about a month ago, the sides announced that they'd reached a two-month ceasefire. What happened? I think this is a very significant development. And, you know, I think a number of factors are at play. I mean, the Saudis have, frankly, struggled with this conflict. They have seen their influence, if anything, diminish in Yemen. They've seen that the Houthis have gained strength on the battlefield. Houthis are a very determined foe. You've had strong support from the Iranians to the Houthis, which is a very unfortunate, I think, development for U.S. interests and also for the interests, ultimately, of Yemenis. So I think a number of factors have come into play where the Saudis have really, you know, seen the benefit, I think, of trying to end the conflict. Yemen's a neighbor, of course, a contiguous neighbor of Saudi Arabia. So whatever happens in Yemen is always going to matter to Saudi Arabia. But we've also tried to encourage the Saudis to end the conflict. And I think that international pressure on all sides, including from within the region, to whom this conflict is damaging and detrimental, are important factors as to why we've gotten to a relatively positive place today. Were you surprised because in February, it seemed much less optimistic? You seemed much less optimistic in February that we were close to a breakthrough, and yet this happened. I think that the fact that the Houthis have not been able to impose their will on the ground in Yemen, which is something that they had had success in the last couple of years, but in in the last year in particular, with their offensive on the city of Marib, about 100 kilometers east of Sana'a, and where there are energy platforms there that the Houthis would like to control. And that city is controlled by the Yemen government. And the Houthis have thrown a lot of fight at Marib over the last year. And they haven't succeeded in taking the town. It's been ridgetop to ridgetop, valley to valley, losses, gains made on a regular basis. But the Houthis have not been able to prevail. And, and strong Saudi air support has been a key factor here. And I think, interestingly, the Emiratis have played a role also in joining forces with the Saudis here to try to blunt the Houthi offensive. The international community, John, has been very, very united about the Houthi offensive on Mara being the major obstacle to peace over the last year. And I think those messages have actually gotten through to the Houthis, combined with the fact that they have not been able to take the town. And the Emiratis sent in this Giants Brigade that they support which has helped tip the balance in Marib in the area in former South Yemen, right? Yes, I think that was a major factor. And of course, the Emiratis care about what happens in Yemen as well. They used to have a larger military presence there, and they drew that down. They still have 
groups that they support and strong interests in Yemen, as do the other Gulf countries. Nobody wants this conflict to continue among the Gulf countries. And I think that there's been a more united front on that side. The primary of which is that there is no military solution to the conflict. And that's what basically the world has been saying. And I think that's what the parties themselves have realized over the course of the last year. That has been beneficial in leading toward the truce and the de-escalation of hostilities. So who are the parties? There's the Saudis, the Emiratis, other Gulf countries. There's the UN, the United States. Who are all the parties and what leverage does the United States have over all of them or arguably over any of them? You have to start with almost you know different rungs, right? In the innermost circle, this is a conflict between Yemenis. It's a conflict between the Yemen government which is internationally recognized, and the Houthis, who are one sector of Yemeni society and the Yemeni political landscape. And it's that conflict that has drawn in outside actors. I mentioned the Iranians, but of course the Saudis. The Omanis don't have a military presence inside Yemen, but obviously also as a neighboring country, have very strong interests in what happens. So at its heart, this is a civil war. This is a conflict among Yemenis which has involved an increasing scope, I think, outside actors. And our goal has been to, number one, try to turn the military conflict into a political track, right? To continue to emphasize that there is no military solution. And as we've seen play on the ground in the last two years, in fact, no party has been able to completely impose its will over Yemen. And that, I think, is an important and sobering realization for the Houthis in particular, but indeed for the coalition. And I think American leverage comes out of our very strong relations with the Gulf countries. The fact that Saudi Arabia is a partner of the United States and we share a strong commitment to ending the conflict. I think that the Houthis have been open to a United States role. I think they they recognize that the United States can do things in terms of positioning the Saudis and the coalition that other countries can't do. And finally, of course, there is a UN-led process here. We've had a successive wave of UN envoys for Yemen. There's a particularly talented one now who's been Hans Grunberg, who's played an instrumental role in achieving this truce. And so we partner with the United Nations They take the lead in terms of a lot of the shuttle diplomacy, but the United States is very much there to provide support. You've been a diplomat for 29 years. You've been in a lot of difficult negotiations, including in Iraq. What's different about these negotiations? These negotiations are different in a couple of ways. One is I think there's a certain amount of exhaustion that is setting in, and that's helping to galvanize the parties to de-escalate. I think number two, as I mentioned, there's no military solution. So any ability by any of the parties to continue to try and push for military gains is an uncertain prospect. And related to that, point number three is that there's a huge toll on Yemen civilians, that this war, as it's continued to slug out, even just in a place like Mara, brings huge humanitarian toll in terms of destroyed infrastructure inability of humanitarians to move supplies throughout the country, IDPs, internally displaced persons who are fleeing one part of Yemen into other parts of Yemen and often having to flee from there as well. 
And I think finally, the international community, I think, has really sensed that there is a moment of opportunity here and that taking advantage of these different strands could lead to things like a truce, de-escalation, prisoner releases, you know, opening up the humanitarian space further so that the much needed assistance that goes into Yemen can be most effective. So let me ask you about the humanitarian issue. You worked in humanitarian relief before you became a diplomat. The UN now estimates that two thirds of Yemenis are in need of humanitarian assistance. There has long been a perception that Houthis are sort of indifferent to the humanitarian needs of the Yemeni people. How has the humanitarian situation shaped both what the Saudi Emirati coalition is doing, what the U.S. and the U.N. are doing, and how the Houthis are doing as we try to move toward something that looks like a resolution? You're absolutely right that the humanitarian crisis is an urgent one. Yemen is frequently called the world's worst humanitarian crisis. Looking at all the metrics, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's more recently the impact of COVID and the lack of vaccines, despite a very strong level of support from the United States, if you look at health factors, if you look at access issues, and the ongoing destruction of civilian infrastructure, these are all factors that lead to the humanitarian crisis. I'm very pleased that the United States is a leading donor. We have provided more than $4.5 billion of assistance, John, since the conflict began. So American dollars are really having impact and going to feed people and provide health care for Yemen's neediest people. The Houthis also have a responsibility to provide humanitarian services for the people who live under their control. And indeed, 80% of Yemen's population lives under Houthi control. And so they have an incentive also that these people don't starve or get displaced. And in that sense, the Houthis do cooperate to a certain degree with international institutions like the World Food Program, like the UN, which has offices in Sana'a, and who is regularly engaging with the Houthi leadership to make sure that the Houthis are providing access and ability for NGOs working in Yemen to follow up with their affected populations and implement the projects they've been funded to do. Although one of the criticisms is that the Houthis insist on bribes or taxes to get assistance to Yemenis, that the Houthis are trying to profit from the international community's efforts to assist Yemen's most vulnerable people. And the argument is the Houthis are indifferent to it. I mean, we saw this with discussions about access through the port of Hodeida, that the Houthis are willing to hold out for benefit, regardless of the humanitarian impact on Yemenis. Humanitarians have really bonded together in the last two years to go into the Houthi leadership with united approaches. Right, So the Houthis can't play one aid organization off against the other. Those common messages are very important for the Houthis to understand that it's not just enough to have a hospital built. There need to be doctors, there need to be supplies, there need to be access, patients need to move, families need to visit. And so there has been some improvement, I would say, in the impact of international organizations to change Houthi perceptions and to open up more access. We've heard a lot about the perilous conditions of the deteriorating oil tanker off the coast of Hodeida. Is there any movement on that issue? John, there is movement on that issue. 
And that is to say that in March, the UN signed a memorandum of understanding with the Houthis to allow the 1.1 million barrels of oil that is on this decaying, decrepit tanker to be offloaded onto a separate and more safe vessel. The concern here is that the software will explode or leak with that heavy load in its hull, and that will create an environmental catastrophe, an economic catastrophe, and a major shipping area, and a major and fragile coastal maritime habitat here, and completely ravage Yemen's fishing industry, impact shipping into the Suez Canal, and tourism you know, throughout the Gulf. So we're very glad that there will be a pledging event on May 11th, which will give an opportunity for countries and the private sector to come together and support a donor effort here to pull funds together to help us offload the oil onto a safer ship. And we've been working in very close partnership with David Gressley, the UN humanitarian coordinator, to implement this MOU. The Houthis will have to follow through on their responsibilities, but that we get this ecological disaster off the table and not have that added to Yemen's woes. You suggested before, and it's been widely reported, that Iran has significant influence over the Houthis. Do you think it's likely that Iran sought to play a constructive role supporting this recent ceasefire so as to help the nuclear negotiations? Do you see an implicit link? I don't see an implicit link, but we're always looking for ways that we can coax Iran to play a more positive role in Yemen. I think the fact that they welcomed the truce on April 2nd, yes, that was well received here. That was a positive step. And indeed, we had Saudi Arabia welcoming a truce in Yemen and Iran welcoming a truce in Yemen. And what we need to see, I think, from the Iranians is what is their behavior on the ground? Are they going to continue to smuggle weapons into Yemen in violation of Security Council resolutions? Are they going to continue to train and arm and equip the Houthis in lethal production of missiles and UAVs? Are they going to continue to encourage the Houthis to attack Saudi Arabia and the UAE or indeed other Gulf countries? It really comes down to what the Iranians are actually doing on the field. And there we must see more and better behavior, I think, from Iran. You were one of the first special envoys that President Biden named after he came into office. You're named at the beginning of February 2021. What is at stake for the United States in Yemen? Why do you think it was so important to name a special envoy? And what do you think you're going to be able to accomplish? I think that the United States under the new administration really sought to highlight the importance of diplomacy. And I think what you have with the truce in Yemen is a diplomatic achievement. And that is because I think between us, the United Nations and other forces who have been working at this problem for so long, we finally achieved this breakthrough through painstaking engagement. I myself had close to 20 trips to the region over the last 15 months and in European countries as well. And all of that marshalling of international determination and the conflict and close ranks internationally so that we're all speaking with one voice with regard to the conflict's key points. No military solution, no one party has the ability to conquer the entirety of Yemen. There must be a political negotiation. I think all these things were greatly assisted by U.S. diplomacy and our efforts. And I think that that combined with the fact that there was a sense of 
determination in the Gulf region that this conflict should end gave some unity, some purpose, and some direction to international efforts. And I think we've seen some benefit from that type of determination and engagement. Your last trip was unusually long, three weeks. What were you able to get done in that period of time? There was a real surge of diplomatic activity by both us and by the UN. And this is what led to the truce on April 2nd. And also, of course, coming out of the Yemeni-Yemeni talks in Riyadh was the appointment of a formation of a new presidential leadership council. Secretary of State called last week to congratulate, but also encourage to reach out across party lines in Yemen, promoting reconciliation and militating against the division that has racked the country. So I think these two developments, trying to ensure that this new leadership gets off to a good start, and continuing in our other stops in the region, John, both to highlight the importance of continued economic and humanitarian support for Yemen. All of this, just to encapsulate it, John, I think speaks to the value of American diplomacy and American engagement in the Yemen conflict at this particular time. We were engaged in Yemeni politics. We helped create the Yemeni National Dialogue, which broke down and partly led into the civil war. Why should we be more optimistic now? What causes for optimism do we have now that this will head in a different direction? You have, for the first time, a truce in Yemen, first time in six years. So if you look at the levels of fighting up to April 2nd, they're quite significant. They drop off steeply at April 2nd. And so the truce is largely holding in most parts of the country. There's reinvigorated Yemeni government leadership. There are many back channels working now between the different parties that I think are very important for promoting an overall solution. And you have a united international community. Let's get this done. It is time for the Yemen conflict to be finished. Nobody wants us more than the Yemeni people. And in our engagements with them in several trips to Yemen that we've had over the last couple of months, man, we hear their voices coming through very strongly, their appeals to see that this conflict is brought to a close. From the outside, it looks like the Gulf hasn't been especially grateful. In fact, what we've seen from the Emiratis is they seem enraged that the United States did not take more seriously several Yemi missiles launched against Abu Dhabi, and they felt the U.S. was not as aggressive as it should be. And I assume you could argue that the Emirati response, which helped elicit this diplomatic movement, was in response in part to the missile attacks. Is there a sense of gratitude in the Gulf? The general picture is that the Gulf feels the United States is less engaged and not doing what it needs to do. It's not necessarily gratitude, but I think there's a real appreciation for American engagement on Yemen. And having just come out of the Gulf 10 days ago, John, being in meetings with the Emiratis, with the Saudis, and other key partners, the Qataris, the Kuwaitis, there's a strong sense of appreciation for American diplomacy. And I think there's a recognition that we probably wouldn't have gotten to this stage without American diplomacy. That said, you know, there's a long way to go, and we haven't achieved peace in Yemen. There is a truce. There are elements of the truce which are in the process of being eliminated. This is a bright spot, but it's also a decisive moment, I think, when the international community, and most importantly, the Yemeni parties themselves, are going to have to make some tough decisions, continue to support the truce, extend it, 
build it into a more durable ceasefire and have the kind of reconciliation and engagement that is going to be necessary for Yemenis to determine the future of their country. Tim, you said you've been on 20 trips in the last 15 months. Does the truce give you an opportunity to actually not have your next trip planned yet? Well, there's also important engagement in Washington. The role of Congress is extremely important. So the opportunity to brief Congress and also to talk publicly, I think, this is a moment when there are events in the world which will completely drown out this little ray of hope that is happening in Yemen. Obviously, there's a huge amount of attention, as it should be, on Ukraine. The Ukraine crisis also has an impact on Yemen. But I appreciate your taking the time because I think it's important for people to know that there is a positive moment here, but that it's also fragile and that it's going to require continued international engagement to turn this moment into a larger peace dividend for Yemen and the Gulf region and more broadly. I certainly hope so. Tim, thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. Next, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about the differences between U.S. and U.N. diplomatic engagement. Linder King talked about the U.N.'s role in negotiating the latest truce in Yemen, but he also said that the United States played a pretty important role as well in recent diplomatic actions in Yemen. So how does the U.S. approach the negotiations differ with the United Nations? Is there a way that they complement each other? Are there things that the United States can do that the United Nations just can't? Well, the United States has a single government that it speaks for, and the government has the power of executive authority to actually execute things, to do things. I think the UN is a coordinating body. The UN has legitimacy. The UN has the responsibility to engage broadly. But when you actually come down to implementing things, I think individual governments... There's a single person at the top with command authority all the way down who can execute things. And in the UN, while it has a lot of advantages, doesn't have that executing ability. Ultimately, the UN is a way to enlist governments to do a lot of things. The UN has an important relief function. But in terms of, of doing discrete things, I think governments are better than the UN is. I think it's probably helpful thinking, yeah, who the primary negotiators are representing as well. So the special envoy for the UN versus the special envoy for the US. I mean, the, it's obvious who the special envoy for the US represents, but in the UN's case, this is someone who is formally nominated by the UN Secretary General. But in reality, that's the consequence of a lot of informal discussions with really all of the key actors, I think, involved. They want to choose someone who has got an aura of neutrality, who's going to be able to speak on behalf of the United Nations, which clearly represents a whole number of countries. And I think in some ways that is a real advantage. Um, they certainly are able to speak to a broader range of people than the United States is able to speak to, at least in an official capacity. And we heard this from Stephanie Williams when she spoke in the episode we did on Libya. She's had the unique role of being both a UN negotiator and also a US diplomat. And she said that when she had her UN hat on, she was able to speak to a much broader range of people, actors who 
have been accused of committing horrendous atrocities, but she can sit there in a room with them and talk to them. And often it's necessary to get these people to the negotiating table, or if not to the negotiating table, at least to agree and not to act as a spoiler to the negotiations that are going on. So I think there are real differences in access in that regard. And so I think that's a real key asset that the UN brings. So thinking about that, and also thinking about what Linder King said, that the U.S. is able to leverage its relationship with the Saudi government in a way that other countries can't. What kind of role does leverage play in all of this and what the U.S. can do that the U.N. can't? The U.N. doesn't have much leverage. The U.N. in many ways reflects a consensus. And the U.S. has a lot of leverage. As I say, it's, it's a single actor. There's somebody at the top of the system who makes decisions. I think the Saudi government cares a lot about its relationship with the President of the United States. It doesn't worry about its relationship with the United Nations system. It doesn't worry about its relationship with the UN Security Council. Saudi Arabia was potentially a member of the UN Security Council and backed out of being a member of the Security Council. It's complicated. It's multilateral. The Saudis in particular have stressed the importance of a bilateral relationship and especially a bilateral relationship with the United States. And that's what a U.S. special envoy brings to the table. Yeah, I think if you think of the sticks and carrots that the U.S. can bring to bear, I mean, ultimately, it is to some degree a party to the conflict. It's able to change its military operations and its strategy in terms of its support for the Saudi-led coalition. It's able to offer development financing. It's able to designate groups as foreign terrorist organizations or undesignate those groups. It's able to sanction people or unsanction those people. Although certainly it tries to make sure that aid is not a part of a carrot that is offered, there are clear implications of these other sticks that I mentioned in terms of the sanctions and the foreign terrorist organization designations that do have an impact on aid access as well. And so I think the United States has a huge amount of leverage there, which certainly the UN doesn't. I would just say on the UN side, I do think there is an aspect of legitimacy that the UN can offer to different parties. The idea of having photos with the UN special envoy is certainly a boon to certain groups. It shows that they've kind of made it and they're being treated as serious actors. And I know that certainly previous UN special envoys to Yemen have considered the role that that legitimacy plays. Certainly it took the previous special envoy, Martin Griffiths, several years before he went to Iran. And in part, that's because by visiting Iran, you are sort of showing that you consider Iran to be a really relevant player in the negotiations. And so I think they have a lot of decisions which do end up having political impacts, um, even though they have this aura of neutrality. I think it's still very carefully managed and considered. To be clear, there's an intimate relationship between the UN Special Envoy and the US Special Envoy. Each one understands what the other brings to the table. I think they have a coordinated plan. Sometimes, I'm sure, one asks the other, would you do this? They are like-minded in so many ways. I think they may have different assessments of how ripe the situation is for solution, how they might order things, but I don't think the US Special Envoy thinks he can succeed without the UN Special Envoy, and I don't think the UN Special Envoy thinks he can succeed without the US Special Envoy. They have distinct but complementary roles, and I think that this particular team has developed a lot of mutual respect and good teamwork 
to work together to bring the parties to where they were able to bring the parties. Thinking about this particular team, zooming out from that to other conflicts in the region, how do you think this dynamic plays out in other conflicts? I think it's always a complementary relationship. I think these kind of sticks and carrots, the role that we've been talking about, the way that they complement each other is certainly the case in other countries as well and other conflicts around the region. But there are conflicts in which the US plays a much larger role directly, and there are conflicts in which it plays a much smaller role. I think in Libya, the US role has been more subtle in recent years, whereas in Syria, certainly for a long time, the US was really trying to push negotiations and push the direction in which they went. Now, as we've seen Syria be deprioritized in terms of importance for the United States, I think the U.S. role is a bit less strong. I mean, President Biden hasn't appointed a special envoy for Syria. So I think that shifts the dynamics a bit and shows, in part, the futility of the negotiations there. The other piece, of course, is to recall that the United States mission to the United Nations is by far the most consequential mission to the United Nations. The United Nations is not an outgrowth of U.S. policy. But the United States has the largest voice in the United Nations. The United States plays a tremendous agenda-setting role in the United Nations. The United States is used to relying on the United Nations to push forward solutions which both advance U.S. interests narrowly, but also advance a broader multilateral agenda. I think you have to see all of this as the United States helped create the United Nations for a real purpose. The United States government still sees a real utility in the United Nations. And part of that utility is having governments come together to support U.S. policy aims without seeming to only be supporting the United States and to give countries a stake in the kinds of solutions the United States is trying to reach out. And certainly getting to a peaceful solution in Yemen, as Lender King suggested, is very much in the interests of the United States. And there is a large international role, including with Saudi Arabia, in ensuring that we get there. And perhaps to add to that, I think an important difference with some of these other conflicts in the region is when UN Security Council members are supporting different sides in a conflict in a major way. Russia is not playing a major role in Yemen. China isn't playing a major role in Yemen. That means that in some ways, the UN has a bit more freedom, I think, to operate. Whereas in Syria, where the United States and Russia and certainly other European countries are supporting different sides, it makes everything much harder and I think really ties the hands of the UN and what it's able to do. And one of the interesting things with Yemen in particular is that the United Arab Emirates, which, as Lander King suggested, is playing an important role in changing the dynamics on the ground that led to this agreement, is also on our tier rotation on Security Council right now. So thinking back to Yemen, Linder King said that he thought the ceasefire was an opportunity for a shift towards a more permanent peace, but that it would require the continued engagement of the international community. We've kind of touched on the UN piece of that and the US piece of that and Saudi Arabia in that. What is the role of the international community in fostering this peace and moving it forward in terms of other countries? Linder King talked a lot about going to European capitals, for example. I think there's going to be some money that comes from the international community. There will certainly be some technical assistance, but the most important part and the hardest part is getting Yemenis to agree on a political future for their own country. I think it's really important to recall that the U.S. and other countries were trying to foster democratic conversation in Yemen, 
post Ali Abdullah Saleh, who led the country for decades, to try to bring the country together to create a new political consensus about power sharing, that broke down, and that's what led to the civil war. The civil war wasn't caused by Saudi Arabia. The civil war wasn't caused by any outside power. The civil war was caused by a deep dispute among Yemenis for how Yemen should be governed. Unless you can successfully get Yemenis to address that issue, which has a role with regional powers using proxies inside Yemen. But unless Yemenis can have a successful political discussion and Yemenis can work out among themselves how power and resources are distributed in the country, you can have whatever you want happening outside the country unless you resolve those fundamental internal differences, you are going to have an ongoing war in Yemen, and you will also find outside powers supporting an ongoing war in Yemen. There's a political process, a power-sharing process, a resource division process, which is really important, which has to take place, which is principally a Yemeni-Yemeni discussion. I completely agree on the Yemeni-Yemeni discussions there, but I also do think that international actors can take advantage of this moment of more constructive dialogue and build on it. I think progress on Yemen has been seen as really critical to broader progress on some kind of reconciliation between Saudi Arabia and Iran. There's another round of talks scheduled in Iraq. I think there's a real opportunity to make some progress there. I know that Lender King downplayed the impact of the JCPOA negotiations. But equally, if Iran is playing a more constructive role in Yemen, I think that probably does help play a more constructive role in other areas as well. And if the JCPOA negotiations break down and, and Iran is looking for more ways to create a sense of urgency among other countries to engage with Iran, that could also rebound and have really negative effects in Yemen. What would that more constructive role look like? Would that just be pressuring the Houthis to respond to negotiations in a certain way? Or I'm not sure how much Iran actually pressures Houthis. I mean, I don't know this relationship very well, but from looking at it from afar, it looks more like Iran sometimes encourages a little more mischief and encourages a little more aggressiveness and supplies things. But that's sort of on the inducement side. I'm not aware. There may be instances, I'm just not aware of instances of Iran trying to put the screws to the Houthis to get them to quiet down. It may be happening, but the kinds of reports I see suggest that Iran much more is on the lighting of fire under the Houthis rather than pressuring the Houthis to knock it off. John and Will, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.